Hey everyone, it's Gary Cook and I'm back with episode 6 of Retro Football Network podcast. My guest today is an author, he was also a podcaster and he's very prolific with his writing and he's written a fantastic book called Eternal. Eternal covers the life, the very short and tragic life of Duncan Edwards, a footballer that perished in the 1958 Munich air disaster. Wayne's stories about Duncan are incredible and I really hope you'll enjoy this one. It does get emotional at times for both Wayne and I. So here he is. Without further ado, my guest today is Wayne Barton. So a big welcome to my guest this week on Retro Football Network podcast. It's Wayne Barton. Wayne, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. It's an honour to be invited. Um, good to talk to you after all this time. I know, thank you. Yeah, we've um, we've exchanged messages for a long, long time now online. So yeah, it's good to finally get the opportunity to speak to you face to face. Um, we're gonna, not going to talk about modern football, which you spend a lot of time talking about. We're going to go back and talk about the past because you've written a lot of books. Um, for people who don't know, you are a very highly respected author who writes about Manchester United primarily. So Manchester United is the the subject that you write about most. You've written a lot of books about eras of the club. You've written about the 70s, the 80s, and even modern day. And you've also covered different players as well. And we're going to talk about one of those players today. But before we do, when I have my guests on, Wayne, I like to talk to them about how they first got into football, some of their early memories. So tell me, when did you first start getting into football? What are your first memories of watching football and, of course, supporting Manchester United? So my first memory is the 85 Cup final. I've got um, got a Cup final ball signed by all the team and a programme. I think signed by the Everton team as well and United, but Everton as well. But I, I wasn't really into football as a kid. Um, I was into like writing and you know, Ghostbusters and stuff like that. And um, and then I, I did as I sort of like got into like turn sort of ten ish. You know what I mean? And um, and then I fell in love. Like you know, you start to sort of be captivated. The thing, the problem that I had with football. Not that it was a problem, but it skipped a generation in my family. So my granddad was into football and my dad wasn't, you know, and he wasn't interested. So we lived in um, Sheffield, the north of Sheffield. So really close to the Woodhead Pass and you could go to Manchester pretty easily, but he, he never showed any interest in taking us. Um, so it wasn't until I was able to go myself that I was actually able to properly go and attend games. Um, but, you know, with... Um, the ability to watch it on TV more and everything like that um, started getting into it more and, you know, like watching the 90 World Cup and then, you know, Robson's everyone's hero and you're hoping for a little bit that Gaza's going to be a hero, but he, he's not. And then Cantona comes in and and that team wins the, the league and wins the double, you know. Um, so thankfully, because of where I grew up, I didn't have that sort of backdrop of Liverpool fans. Mostly, they're only a couple in our school. Um so didn't have them but i had a lot of wednesday fans and wednesday were really good at the time you know sheffield yeah. wednesday they they had ron atkinson as well and they i remember them beating us in the league cup final and they were going on about it and this for ages it was like you know waddles better than gigs and all this sort of stuff because <laughs> i was a united fan and um it was quite an, it was quite intense i mean i was bullied quite a lot at secondary school anyway but um there were games like you know if when and uh, we went to one one time Wednesday won a reserve game at Ullsborough. They battered us. I think they scored five 
that, that might have been a little bit later in the decade, actually, mid 90s, might have been 95, 96, or 67. They batted as Hillsborough and they were going on and on about it. Like that meant more to them because we, well, I think United had won the corresponding league fixture. So to them, the reserve game was the revenge. Anyway, so like, um, so I was, it was, you know, it was my grandparents who were getting me into United. As I say, getting me into United, they were more into football than what my, my parents were. And I, I was, my real interest in United history came probably when I was 13 or No, I must have been 13. Um, because we went to Cleethorpes and we went, there was a Woolworths there and there was a, um, they had the, it's behind me now, the, Modern era Manchester United, Tom Tyrrell, David Meek, the history yeah, of two the legendary club. names there. Yeah, and um, and she got me the book, so I've just like absorbed myself in that history. Do you know, it was my first education on United history, and I had that book. I read it, read it, read it, and it was like there with me for years. And took it to college. Um, one of my media studies assignments were to, you know, to make a. I came up with the idea to make a program on the fiftieth um, anniversary of Munich because of oh, the fortieth at the time, ninety-eight. So, um, so I, I cut out some pictures of the book at the time when you couldn't really download. You know, there was no yeah. internet. You had to. That's the. I could have got it photocopied, but I wasn't that resourceful. I didn't even think about the damage that I was doing, and I did it. And like a year later, I was thinking, "Oh my god, I've ruined this book," and you couldn't go out. There was no Amazon. You couldn't go out and get yep. a replacement. And it was only a couple of years ago. My wife got me the exact same book for Christmas. Oh, Christmas. fantastic. Every, every now and again, she'll get me, um, you know, for Christmas, she'll get me a bunch of old retro books, some that yep. she'll, she'll look on the shelf, see what I haven't got. And she's good like that. And she'll find me stuff. And, and she found that. And I was in tears. Like, But oh. she got me. The, it was the collection, really. She got me because that book was reprinted and republished like reissued like in 94 and then 95 you know i added different sections yeah, as, course, as yeah. tom and david i added to it and she got me the different editions but she got me that one and um i was able to find the old one and say look where i've been cutting it out and i was too ashamed to open it again do you know what i mean because <laughs> of that and i said look, look what you've done you've replaced it and it's like so yeah that's where my education came really and um yeah um and obviously, over the years, you know, you send more matches. We moved up to Manchester. I, I live there now, been here for for over ten years, and I don't know. I, in United, I haven't won anything really for ten years. Well, they have won stuff in in, in comparison with the rest of football. They have. We're not. We're still. Um, it's not as turgid as some would have you believe. We've still won some trophies. You know what I mean? We've won a, a fair quote. We don't have a divine right to win everything. No. It's been ten years since being properly good under Ferguson and I guess you would think that oh that's a, a bad time to support us but I think because of and I know you're gonna ask me about it but because of writing for you know about United and working with different people I just feel like that over this time my connection to the club has grown so much yeah. in the way that I feel for it and maybe it's just getting old and nostalgic as well we're both nostalgic people that yeah. The older you get, the more nostalgic you, you get, the more you, you tie things to things of the past and you think, oh, this is a fabric that runs true for, for this or a thread that runs true to the fabric because of this reason and that reason. And you contrive things in your own mind to make it more romantic. Yeah. And that's where I am today. I just like, and I love it, you know, more and more. And, you know, it's, it's crazy. I, you know, I, I really do. I, it's difficult talking about it because you, it feels like when you talk about your love for your club, it, 
it feels like you're comparing it to other people, and I'm really not. Just talking about my personal experience and how much no, I, 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 I don't, I love I don't feel it's that way at all. I think it's, I think it's good, and I think one thing that's interesting as well. I think when you meet people, it doesn't matter even what team they support. I feel when you you know that there's people who've got a real love, like you say, deep rooted love for the club. I think you can really relate to them anyway. I think, yeah. like you say, you're not point scoring and saying, look, I've supported them longer. I've been to more games. Just talking to people. I've got some really close friends who support other teams and one particular Everton fan who, of course, totally different to me, but we've just got a lot of mutual respect for each other because of, we're the same age and we've got similar experiences through going to football, etc. And the same thing, like you talked about, because of media and the situation at the time and no internet if you had a book you read it cover to cover over and over again yeah. now you talked about the history of manchester united there so i imagine when you read that book that's when you first became familiar with people like um duncan edwards etc yeah i mean that, that's your introduction to it isn't it you know, i mean you, you sort of grow up with it and you hear the names you know but then when you're yeah. reading about what they actually did but even then, I mean, in a in a complete history book, you are reading the timeline of the history. You know, you're yeah. you're reading um, the the club's history, really. And these names make fleeting appearances, as detailed yeah. as and and as wonderfully written as those books are. Those names still make fleeting appearances because of the affordability of space in the yeah. book. Do you know what I mean? That's that's the nature of writing a book. Um, so you, so you then become compelled to learn more where you can find it and you know obviously at the time there weren't a load of biographies about of all of the different players no. and that that comes over time and then the accessibility of online research uh, material you know like newspapers and then even even to the extent of there are online newspaper libraries but when you are able when we were able to get access to the internet and all stuff like that it wasn't just that it was on the internet it was like the internet could tell you where to find it as well you know yeah. so it helped in in two ways and obviously the most rewarding thing uh, about doing any research about anyone is doing the physical research and doing yeah. finding something that's not being posted online or, or a story that's not being told to someone else those kind of things and you know that that process is a lot later down the line of what we're talking about you know the the natural curiosity when you're when you're a young lad and you're like oh this is interesting. I want to read more about this. And every time you read something, it's like, oh, oh, yeah, this, this relates to that. Um, and the, the other side of it, I'm talking about the, the the real curiosity, is now having the fortunate capability to go and talk to different people who were, were connected to these people in a way that um, I couldn't do when I was just um, starting out or when I was just a, a fan um, going to the game and not having any inclination that i was going to start this career so um and the curiosity then just it goes and goes and goes because the more you more the more you learn the more you realize that you don't know and the yeah. more that you want to know that as well um so and that's that's part of the fun of not really well yeah it's football as well but it's also the fun of being a historian you know looking yeah, back, course, you want yeah. to find out stuff like that so um not that i would have ever described myself as that really um it's funny because I know that you're going to ask about writing as well. I didn't never even, th I'd never 
imagine that would be a football writer. Do you know what it's I mean? It's interesting because you said that that's something that you loved to do before even football came into being a, a real hobby. You said that you were interested in writing even at that early age. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I wanted to, I wrote comics for my mum. Yeah. And she kept them, bless her. Um, but um, they were awful. But they, they, I was—I wanted to write stories, yeah. um, and I, I can remember writing stories for all sorts of, like their cousins. You know, like when we had little cousins born into mm -hmm. the family and stuff like that. I'd, I'd write stories um, that, that would hopefully entertain them, mm -hmm. um, and that's what I thought I wanted to do—like write, um, write stories. Mm -hmm. When I was eleven, on my school report, I. I'd, and I found it. Well, my mom found it for me a couple of years ago. She dug it out, and it said, "I'm like, I think it's the first report of secondary school, and it's like some criticism about um, my attitude and application in some some classes." And my my own little feedback at the end was, um, "My targets are, I want to improve the neatness of my handwriting, and but for targets when I'm older, the only thing I want to be is an author." Yeah, and it, and it was really, and but it wasn't um you know I, I as i got older i wanted to be a football journalist and then yeah. various things happened you know like my parents split up and i rebelled against that and i dropped out of college and because college where i was going to learn fo uh, football journalism was on the other side of town so uh, you know what i mean i, I was yeah. doing things to make it easier for myself because i was a teenager rebelling against my parents and then i just got a career went into a different career um, and it wasn't until like much later, I was like, I'd still had the urge to write because I had a natural inclination to want to write things about yeah. and, and about football. And that came around and I was writing for a blog. Um, and it was going quite well. You know, I, I was getting some attention, like, like quite widespread attention. I wrote a blog when Rooney wanted to leave United in 2010. I wrote a blog saying how big a mistake that would be for him. Was, was this was this on your own site or was this for somebody else? For for somebody else. So that so this was the thing, right? This was the thing with me is that um I did start my own blog. Like I would start them at the start of a season. So like maybe for three or four seasons, I would start a blog because that's what people were doing at that time. You know, they're like so like 2004, 2005, 2006, start of a season, I'd start writing a blog, and then about four or five weeks in, I'd get bored with the constant doing it and I, and I stopped and I was posting on, I think it was like BBC 606 and there was a guy who was running the United blog and he said, oh, do you want to write for my blog? And because it was his thing that he was doing and I didn't feel like I had to run it and I could just dip in and out yeah, and then sure. I, and, and I, and I didn't have the pressure of running it myself. And then I felt like I was contributing to where other people were contributing that it gave me more inclination to keep up with doing it. So I was doing that for maybe two or three years. Um, and then and then I wrote up, then there was a, this um, Wayne Rooney transfer request. And I wrote a blog on that and CNN picked it up and I got a lot of attention. And, and this was... Uh, That's I'd incredible. Just, yeah. just CNN. Just like well, it, it went viral for a bit. I went on, um, you know, I went on and got interviewed and everything like that. And, it, you know, it was really good because I think the reason why they picked it up is because Rory McIlroy, the golfer, had shared it. And, um, ah, right. Okay. And it was, um, it sort of, I guess it struck a chord that I was, I was being really passionate about it and, and really passionate in defence of the club saying that, you know, it looked at the time like United were on the ropes because they just lost Ronaldo and Rooney was holding them to ransom. But I was saying, like, I was coming at it from the other angle, um, which won't be unfamiliar to anyone who was listening to, to this about um, anything to do with me, is I was defending the club, really. It was like saying, well, Rooney, you'll be the one making the mistake because, really, if you stay for, 
for the rest of your career, you stand to break the club records held by Bobby Charlton. And why would you not want that? That's got to be bigger than anything you can achieve somewhere else, considering the things that you've already won. Um, And, uh, you know, it happened all very quickly, didn't it? You know, he, he signed a new contract and everything. It was a bit of a blur. But I'd only just joined Twitter as well, and you know, because it'd been a long time. I think I'd been on it for maybe nine or ten months, and because I'd resisted it for a long time, the owner of the blog had kept telling me to go on because he was saying, "Oh, well, it's a good way to share and get popular and everything like that." So I had exponential growth over that period of time, but because of the growth of that and the success of that thing, I had a little bit of a conflict with the guy who was running the blog because. I, I don't know why, and uh, you know, sad really because I, I really did get on with him. But you know, you a bit younger, and it was his thing, and you know, I, I really don't know why. But we just, um, just went our own ways, and I stopped writing for for that. But because I'd got the taste for it, I set up my own blog, and by then, um, because I because I'd been writing there for a long time, I'd been able to sort of branch out and get a few contacts, like. Mm-hmm. To, to interview people so i interviewed david may kevin pilkington you know a few few not the biggest name players but um they were always very helpful with the time so when i, I said i'm going to set up my own website i said would you help me do it you know like write some stuff for it if i interview for it and they were like yeah yeah, yeah no problem and so that that went on for that's, that's really good of them though wayne as well and i think yeah. to be honest sometimes i mean uh, david may's quality when you listen to him talk he's very passionate a very amusing person anyway but i think people like that then perhaps give you better value anyway than some of the biggest names they've got a better stories to tell and they're more open and giving with your time anyway so sometimes it makes for better content well yeah I, exactly it's funny you say that because that was um yeah no it is it's, it's a funny thing that you say that because so i i set up the um the website and these guys were helping me out and because because of the profile of those two and there were a couple of others helping out i knew that i could reach out to others of a similar profile and see if they would want to contribute and that happened organically and so we're having a lot of former players contribute to the website and that site had been running for maybe the best part of a year and it's actually it's funny how the, these things work out my first wedding anniversary my wife got me paper it was a paper anniversary she got me a book yeah um and we just moved to manchester at the time and the book was alex stepney's autobiography yeah and in the book was a ticket to go and see him at the not to go and see him but to do the legends tour at old trafford uh, a couple of months later so i read the book uh you know like it's the first book that i'd read for a while first football book i'd read for a while you know because obviously life takes over and you just sort of like yeah, yeah. um and then Around that period of time, um, I was following Brian Greenoff's on, on on social media and reached out to them. I said, "Do you think Brian?" He wasn't on it at the time. I said, "I said, do you think Brian would be up for an interview? Could I interview him?" Like I was interviewing everyone, and they said, "Yeah." And normally, with my research, what I would do is see if those players had got a book because then I would get it and skim through it and like you mm-hmm. know what I mean at that time. But he didn't have one, so when I contacted him and we did the interview, I said, "I'm." It was actually the night before. Um, the interview, I said to my wife, I said, you know what, I think because of this book, because of the Stepney book, it had planted the seed in my head, like, do you know what, I, d- yeah. I do really want to do this, and I wonder if, like, there's a, and I think it just all came together at that time, I said, oh, do you know what, I'll just ask him if he wants to do it, and he did, 
And I mean, then it's been, you know, from then I interviewed Tommy Doherty and Sammy McElroy and Gordon Hill for that book. And then Gordon contacted me after and everything went like that. But you said, uh, you were saying about those so-called lesser lights and how interesting they are. Well, I'd made a, you know, like the, the, the core of the lads who were helping me with the website were generally youth team players like Kevin Pilkington, who would not, Marcus yeah. Neymar, players who would not played a lot for the first team. And um, I was thinking, oh, do you know what would be really interesting is to tell a story of the youth system through mm -hmm. the, the eyes of these players. And then obviously around the time I was writing, I was doing the interviews, um, the the news came that Fergie was retiring. So it was obvious that this book was going to be a complete record of Fergie's time from day one to, to the last day. So what I did was made sure that I got a player to cover every single day do you know what i mean so every every span of that era was was completely covered and um and i think that it did the book more justice that i got those so-called lesser lights because there were a lot yeah. of people there that people hadn't heard on for a long time yeah. I, had to, I, I tracked down jules Majorana and i know something mm. he's probably not been active on social media lately but he he was basically missing for a long time until like we pulled, pulled it back up to social media and tony gill who um he was very i think i got him through jules actually i managed to interview him um, and he came onto twitter for like maybe about six months and then just jacked it in but he yeah. you know he's another player so he was there and then gone um so yeah so i was able to do that and because i i, I was able to that book deal was negotiated at the same time as gordon hill's book deal yeah. you know that, that publisher took two books and because i'd got one written under my own name and thankfully the journalists were really kind to it so it gave me a platform for all the rest of it you know it could go on and on and i probably will ramble on and on but that was the that was the basis of it you know what i mean that's where it all started from and but that that book you're talking about fergie's fledglings isn't it the book yeah. you're talking about yeah um but when when you talk about those names as well um for people who are a little bit younger than us they obviously are familiar with neville neville beckham etc the class yeah. of 92 not many of them know that like i heard somebody talking about russell beardsmore on a podcast and you'd think that russell beardsmore played in the 1960s how they were talking russell beardsmore was in the united first team in the late 80s i mean it's not like it's that long ago but players like russell beardsmore i was there when tony gill broke his leg at forest yeah um, at the city ground and a lot of a lot of players at that point in that 88 89 season came through david wilson as well another one and yeah. um daniel graham they were they were massively thrown in at the deep end through yeah. just because <laughs> they had no choice and so you got these players coming through and it's interesting because the media created this fergie's fledglings because they wanted something that simply created like a, a new busby babes yeah and with the busby babes of course your book that came out earlier on in the year eternal talks about one of the most famous, um, Duncan Edwards. And as we record this on the 2nd of October, yesterday would have been his 87th birthday yep. of Duncan Edwards. I've got to ask you, how did that book, Kate, come about? Because you've written about George Best. Did it feel like a natural progression to cover Duncan? Or how did it come about that you were going to write a book about somebody that I would say Wayne, and this is no disrespect, is a mythical figure. And I don't mean that like he doesn't never existed. I mean, as in like, there's so many people talk about him, but we never saw him. Yeah. So many people didn't see him. So there's not a lot of footage. You can't go on YouTube and watch 
highlight reels and etc so how did this book come about um so I'd, I'd written a book on jimmy murphy it was 2018 and that book was published and because of that the murphy family um, were invited down to as they always were invited down to st francis's church in yeah. in dudley and there was a lady there called rose who um she knew sarah duncan's mum and she had a heavy hand in organizing um, the you know the the commemoration events um so i think because i'd released the book rose reached out to me and asked if i'd go down there um if i wanted to go down there for, for the anniversary of the commemorative event that they had for for duncan's passing which is obviously on a different day to munich the, he passed away two weeks after Munich. That's right. Yeah. So, um, so I went down there, and we were talking, and I think it might have even been as early as that. She'd said to me, um, "Oh, the fam Duncan's family would probably like another book written about him." And I sort of sat with me for a little while, and you know, I didn't, you know, I didn't have any great inclination to do that straight away because I was working on the George Best book, and. Believe it or not, and it might sound silly because I've written the books and they've been published. They are quite daunting projects to take on, especially you know, like the George Best one. I was tackling a lot of things like, you know, is it right to write a book that's concentrating just on his football? You know, I know that was his wish and that's what I was trying to execute. Yeah. But it's like, are you doing the right thing by not really talking about his drinking and everything like that? So you you have to really get yourself into that that mindset to be able to do that. And and also George is precious. He's a very precious name and mm. Um, was, my friend Dan um, is one of my best friends. He's a really good sort of sounding board for projects. In fact, I have a really good close network of people around me who've got better sense of timing than what I have. So they'll say you should work on this now for this reason. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, about momentum of certain things, not necessarily anniversaries, but like you should do this because you you're talking to this person, you're talking to that person, and it aligns for this reason. Oh, we could do, go here and do this that yep. kind of thing and um so my friend dan had actually said to me to do the george best book he said i think you should do it so the george best thing was like you know you kind of want to write books on every me being in my position the fact that i'm lucky enough that publishers will take my ideas not every idea but they'll mm -hmm. take my ideas and they'll entertain them um i if i could write a book about every united legend i obviously would I, i'd love to do that um but obviously you've also got to be ready yourself like the george best book i would have written 12 years ago wouldn't have been as good as the one that i published two years ago no you're more experienced as well and yeah and then the, the people as well. the trust that i've got with different people and everything like that so and i knew that you know and he said to me no the time's right for you to write this one so I, I was doing that and i don't know what it was but my wife had said to me she said you should write you, sh you should actually contact rose and see you know if, if they're still interesting doing the duncan book and i said that at the time i think i felt like i had too much going on and she's pressuring me to do it so i said all right i will so and rose said yeah come down and we'll talk about it and they you know she said yeah um the idea was the family had always wanted one writing from the perspective of um, normalizing him yeah he's, like you said he's a mythical figure but if you go down to dudley which i did to talk to rose it's kind of like you know he's everywhere yes he is yeah. everywhere um in he's a hero to everyone they learn about him they might learn about messi and ronaldo 
but then as soon as you know because they were the faces on the tv but as soon as a kid had heard about messi or ronaldo the next person they were getting the education on was duncan edwards yeah and that's that's incredible as you said because this is dudley this is dudley in the black country it's the west midlands it's basically on the doorstep of wolves really wolverhampton wanderers yeah and you mentioned st francis church there which is bit of a link there for me as a kid because two things which struck a chord when you were talking about yourself reading um by 85 it would have been probably after my second or third game my dad bought me a book and it was called 25 years after munich and the book was from 1983 to commemorate the 25th anniversary of munich so it doesn't even include the 83 cup final it's literally must have come out february time and it's talking about munich and it's talking about how the club came back so 63 cup final 68 european cup champions chip wins etc then it talks a little bit about relegation then it talks about 1977 and fa cup final to present day 1983 but of course as an eight-year-old kid as i was reading that was just unbelievable because i was absorbing everything about manchester united i could in this it's not a very big book i'm sure mum and dad still got it at home with my dad's programs but for an eight-year-old kid to read about the disaster of munich was absolutely shocking for me because when you go to old trafford for the first time doesn't matter how old you are you see the clock the clocks there everything is there the the legacy still remains as it should always do but also as well another thing my dad did and i don't know where he got it from and when he listens to this he'll be shouting probably at me telling me where he got it from he has a picture whether it's from a magazine or a newspaper of one of the stained glass windows from saint francis church in dudley because there are two i think there are two is that right two stained glass windows of duncan edwards so you've got to bear in mind this is a a small town in the heart of the black country in the west midlands and yet it doesn't matter this player never represented their local team he represented england he represented manchester united and tragically died at the age of 21 and as you said he's i went to dudley with work about 20 years ago and the first thing i did i, I wanted to just see what i could about yeah. duncan edwards because for me it was special so it's quite incredible there. So, w- why did why did he not go to Wolves, Wayne? Why did why, Wolves were probably one of the best teams in the country at the time? They got um, Stan Cullis as the legendary manager. How did he end up at Manchester United? Yeah, um, well, I think Wolves definitely wanted him. Um, the Duncan was part of a generation of players who grew up um, there for the first entertainment. Basically, it was called. At the time, it was the greatest cup final, wasn't it? United 4, Blackpool 2 in 1948. And all those kids um, of that generation were growing up, listening to that. And it wasn't just the fact that United won the cup because a team wins a cup every year. It's the fact that the way in which they won it and the way in which they won it were they were losing the game. And then I think they were still losing on the hour mark. And then they scored three goals within 15 minutes and win the cup. And if you're a kid listening to a, a glut of goals going and it's like oh my god this is entertainment they've won the cup and they've come from behind and they've scored all these goals in a quick rapid uh, period of success and then obviously uh, that was obviously at the time you weren't getting cup final on the tv you were getting it getting it on the radio so 
you're only listening to someone describe the entertainment. And then over that next period of, of years, you know, Busby's team finished runners-up three times, then they won the league. And so they were gathering this uh, reputation of um, entertaining football, but also at the same time, they were bringing in all these young players and they were developing a reputation. And for, for doing that, for giving these kids a chance in a team, and then that network went nationwide. So in the early 50s, those scouts were everywhere in the country and like they'd be scouts saying, yeah, we want you to come and play for Manchester United. So if you can imagine, there's probably boys all over the country going, Hi, I hope one of those scouts comes to me. Mm. They want they want to get that golden ticket because it sounds alluring. They want to be given this chance to go somewhere and play in this football team. And I, I'm pretty sure that that's probably what it was. Like, you know, his family couldn't explain it really because his family were wolves mad. They go to Molyneux and he, he went to a game at Molyneux and he wasn't interested. In fact, I mean, this was the thing about Duncan. He was a terrible watcher of football, apparently. He didn't like to watch games. Um, but, you know, and he couldn't, I don't think the story goes that he didn't sit through the entire game at Molyneux. He just had right. to go, you know, he couldn't think. But his family couldn't explain why he had this. Uh, you know, he never, and he never explained why he was so intoxicated by the going, uh, by the idea of going to Manchester United. And, and the story goes that when United actually signed him, um, they'd got wind. There'd been a, a mix-up in terms of information that they'd got with the scouts. You know, there was a scout from Wolves who were meant to be going, a scout from Bolton who was meant to be driving down. And so United, had, they'd heard that, but it was incorrect information. Uh, you know, they, so what they ended up doing was, you know, United's uh, Jimmy Murphy and I think Bert Wally drove in the middle of the night to knock him up on, you know, at midnight. Um, and it was just not at the age where he's turning 16 because, um, no, in fact, he was 15 at the time we signed for United. But so the schoolboy terms, you know, like obviously they, yeah. in later years they would sign on the birthday, but it wasn't that, it was school leaving. So it was early June. And as, so as soon as he left school, um, he was able to sign for another club. And United had thought that on that day, Bolton were going to get him. That they, okay. They'd heard that they, they were actually going down at midnight. And that's the thing that inspired United to go down at midnight and knock him up. They're not the parents. And they're like, you know, the parents had got out of bed. They said, we want to speak to Duncan. We want to sign him. So they get Duncan out of bed and he comes down. Um Duncan apparently said to him, what's all the fuss about? I only wanted to sign for you. I was always going <laughs> to sign for you anyway, do you know? Um, so, yeah, there, there's no real explanation. You know, like George Best, there is a little bit more of an explanation. Um, that, but the the Duncan thing, he just had an affinity with United and um, and he loved it. You know, like, you know, you hear stories of players going there and being homesick. But Duncan just, he took to life. He absolutely loved it from day one. Um, and he was made, he seem, seemingly made for the club. And he, it's almost like, you know, like Eric Cantona walked into Old Trafford and it's like yeah. immediately the spotlight was made for him. It was like yeah. that for Duncan. And he wouldn't have known that as a 15-year-old, but he no, seemed like that at the time, you know. Um, so, yeah, he was definitely destined to go there um, for certain. And when, when and you mentioned that as well, his timing of his arrival, as you said, Busby wanted to bring in youth and shake up the team a bit. Some of the, the first team were getting older and they needed to bring in some some new blood, of course, coincided with the introduction of the FA Youth Cup. Yeah. And Duncan Edwards took part in the first ever FA Youth Cup, which, of course, everything timed rightly because that was what United dominated the early years of that that cup. And yeah. the Busby babes were able to 
to win it. I think they won it five years on the trot or something, and they yeah. were just dominating it. And Duncan Edwards, of course, was part of that. To the point that I heard a story a while ago that he actually played for England and then went and played in the youth cup because not this, I don't mean like the next day. I mean that he'd already won an England cap and there was a bit of controversy because they didn't like the fact that he was going to play in the FA youth cup after already playing for England. They didn't think it was, um, well, it was, you don't do that sort of thing, do you? And even though he was old enough and he was still able to play in the FA youth cup because he played for England at such a young age that they considered it as being, not not fair play. It's not cricket, old man. Yeah. And I believe Matt Busby actually had to get involved and just say, well, wait a minute. <laughs> What's yeah, the foot kind of thing? And He's old enough to play. I think it was an under-21 cap that he was. I don't think he'd played for the senior ah, right. side yet. I, I, might, I might be wrong in that. Um, I, I'd have to, it'd be bad form for me if I, if I was. I don't think he'd played for the senior side, but I do I know the story that you're talking about because I think it was Rotherham. Their boss had come out, uh, their manager come out, and they're like, "Oh, I can't believe this is playing." Um, but the yeah, the idea was he's old enough to play, yeah. So he, he's he's eligible to play. Why would they not play? But you're quite right about the youth cup. I mean, it was it seemed like it was set up just to showcase what Busby was doing, and and you know, the stories of him in the youth cup are legendary. He was obviously it was too good for that level immediately. There was yeah. a story of they played a game against Chelsea. I mean, I'll, I'll run, I'll rattle through the stories as quick as I can. They yeah. were 1-0 down to City in a game in the fog. And and Duncan said to Busby and, and Murphy, I think it must be... No, the story goes that he said it to Busby. Um, and Murphy would have been there as well, obviously. Said, don't worry, don't worry, bosses, I'll, I'll turn it round for you. Do you know? And they couldn't see. But he did. He scored two goals. Um, the uh, you know there was a game where they played Bexley Heath. They went down on the coach uh, down on the train, and when they went down on the train, um, his stardom was becoming so big that Jimmy felt Jimmy Murphy felt, oh, I've got to give him the captaincy at this point. Do you know what I mean? I've got to give him the captaincy because he's the biggest. So he went up to him and he said, "Look, Duncan, I think I'm going to make you the captain for the first time." And Duncan thought about it. You know, he sat there and thought about it. And later on, on the same trip, on the same train journey, he went up to Jimmy and just said, "Look, David Pegg's the captain. I'm not the captain. He's a captain. He deserves to stay captain." Which yeah. tells you a lot about him as a yeah, of course, as yeah. a player. Because everyone always says that he was always destined to be England captain. Maybe he was, but maybe he would have respected the captain who, who was there. Um, anyway, that's a little note. But when they get to Bexley Heath, United are a goal down, or, or maybe they're not. Um, but they they're struggling. Uh, Bexley at the time was Charlton's basically their farm, the nursery side. That's where mm -hmm. Charlton would get the youth team players from. So um, the, the, everyone's gathered there. There's a big crowd all waiting to see the Busby Babes. And one of them shouts at Jimmy Murphy after, you know, half an hour of relatively poor football. Says, where's your bloody, uh, where's your famous Duncan Edwards? Yeah. So within two minutes, Duncan Edwards gets the ball runs with it 20 yards and then blasts one in from 30 yards and he turns around and he goes there's your effing Duncan Edwards <laughs> um, then the, the, those stories are great but then um, Jimmy's worried a little bit later on that you know United's young players are getting too much of a Duncan Edwards complex you know like they're always going to look to him to turn games you know like it's all well and good having the best player in the country in your youth team but they he didn't want the you know United had the best youth team in the land anyway. They didn't always need Duncan Edwards to bail them out. So he says for this game at Chelsea, he says, Look, lads, you know, I know Duncan is a great player, but 
you, you've got to trust yourselves. So I don't want you to always like look for him. If you see him open, but you want to run on by yourself, just take the chance, express yourself, and enjoy yourself. United are one 0 down at half time. Murphy comes in. He goes right. Enough of that. Give the ball to Duncan whenever you can. <laughs> <laughs> Within ten minutes of the second half, Duncan scored twice, and United win again. Um, so the, these kind of things were happening before he got into the first team. And so the idea was, you know, like you know, he was too good for that level. He was all pretty much too good for first team level already. Do you know what I mean? He was, you know, like they were embarrassed by how good he be at that level. Um, so and opponents would be annoyed by that because he, he had the confidence to go with it as well. So you can see why opposing coaches would be unhappy because it's like using a cheat code to win. And United didn't really need him to, to win because they were good. The team was probably good enough anyway, uh, as it proved by winning the, the like one or two youth cups. They, they went on to win without him in the side. Yeah. Um, but yeah, having him in obviously didn't harm their chances. No, and it's interesting as well that you say that because even though they had good players, that's that's a thing that happens. I mean, it happens at a lot of clubs. I mean, it happened at Manchester United in the 1980s with Brian Robson as well, where this yeah. people become seen as a little bit as a one-man team at one point. And even though they had players of excellent ability, sometimes they just look because that person's just that one level higher or mentally stronger as well. Yeah. So, so at this point, then, he's played in the youth team, but also as well, he, he got in the first team quite early as well, which... Um, was a very was he 16 wasn't he when he first yeah. played, played for the first team 16 and a half um played against cardiff didn't go very well though did it we, no, lost, it was <laughs> yeah four four one we lost um i think four one or four nil no, four one um and this was a year after busby had won the title um as well so 1953 um someone had said to him in I think, I think it was that very summer, actually. Someone had said to him, this team's ageing. How are you going to move on from it? You know, it's Johnny Carey, Henry Coburn, yeah. Alan Bichilton, all these players. And he's saying, oh, how are you going to um, move on from this? And to which Busby had replied, well, we've got £200,000 of talent in the reserve. At a time where the, the record transfer fee was um, £35,000 in English football. So he's saying five players of of the quality that will of, will go for record transfer fees at least yeah. five players of that quality are in, are in that nursery and it was such a bold claim and obviously I mean, everyone knew who duncan edwards was and there wasn't even notwithstanding the the terrible debut uh in terms of result there was never any doubt that he was going to be a star player no. um it was more to do with the the you know the thought that is there really that many um good players in there and there were obviously that, but that process took time, and you couldn't imagine it today, because even even with Ferguson in the in the nineties, you know, when he broke up that ninety three ninety four winning side, he started to do it gradually, and there were still some hiccups. Um, yeah. Whereas Busby sort of did it more abruptly and brought in all of them together. Um, but even Ferguson couldn't afford to do that. Do you know, he still needed that that. Um, element of success to keep him tidied over well whereas in the 50s perceptions of what success meant yeah. Busby was already seen as one of my well arguably United's best ever manager by winning the league title and league cup there was no one else who'd surpassed him so he'd earned the right to break it up even though some people thought he was mad to lose yeah. all that experience and, and bring them all in together but then 
obviously the, the benefit of that was they only needed that sort of two years together. The, the real triumph wasn't in the, the chemistry of that happening because that's a logical thing now with the benefit of hindsight, you say, bring all these kids to the academy and then put them into the first team together. And that rhythm that they've learned um, is such a benefit in terms of the pattern of the play that it will only be a good thing. And if they've already got the talent, then it's not completely illogical to say that they'll be dominating the league by their early 20s. What made it more of a compelling success was the fact that these players, the the younger ones, were conscripted to national service. They were they weren't training at United most of the time. They were training um, with the with the army teams that yeah. they they've been assigned to. So if they were lucky that like you know if Duncan Edwards was lucky, he was with Bobby Charlton and maybe a couple of others of the you were in the barracks with him so they could play in the army team together but many of them weren't together so when they went back to play games for united they were basically um you know hoping that the chemistry that they they had learned when they were together was still holding tight uh, don't get me wrong i'm not saying that united were at a disadvantage every other team with young players had this disadvantage course, yeah it was the, it was the law wasn't it, it was yeah the... so and every other team was dealing with it but it, it does still say testament to how good those players were and how good the system was that they were able to succeed at such a such a young age and yeah by by you know 1956 they were already being discussed as the best united team of all time and they were 2021 um which you know and that was at a time when compliments i was talking about this earlier you know duncan edwards was voted european third third place in European Player of the Year at 19, in 1957 and Di Stefano and I think Stanley Matthews might have been in the top and this was a time where you know Stanley Matthews would win awards he was in his 40s yeah. and it was kind of like long you know you you earned reputation through your longevity you know through what you'd achieved in the game so it wasn't necessarily a case of don't get me wrong if he wasn't good if stanley matthews wasn't a legendary player he wouldn't have been playing in the top flight no. that your age would have still been found out but more kudos was given to you for what you'd achieved in the game so it, it wasn't necessarily a case of um you know the, these players just came in and they had a reputation and they got they got a claim straight away it was like they would have to earn it so the fact that duncan edwards finished third in the ballon d'or award as it would come to be known was major it told you how many sort of barriers he'd broken through all yeah. those established names in world football that they were thinking all right this guy's the real deal and he was united had many jewels but he was the, he was the shining one out of all of them and it's there's some really interesting things there when you talk about that that period of time first of all national service um the fact that busby was able to dismantle a team and you get mutterings perhaps in the stands or somebody reading the newspaper about it what a different time where yeah. now in football somebody drops somebody for one game and you think it's the end of the world the fact that the national service existed at the time and also the fact that duncan edwards at that age was respected so much without the wall-to-wall -wall coverage no t the tv yeah. coverage of course not the same nothing like that and you you can say you got radio before people aren't watching games on the tv yet you've got a situation where somebody had established himself through playing for his club and also then his country as well to the point that he was so highly respected to put against two people who were legendary at that time in yeah. Stanley Matthews and um, Di Stefano so because of course this time United Busby pushed hard to get Manchester United to take part in this new tournament overseas. 
they didn't want him to take part. They didn't want United to be in it. But Busby, forward thinking, thought it was a good idea and the future, of course. And United took part and came close um, to winning it, of course. But Real Madrid were dominating. Yeah. And Duncan Edwards was a big part of United competing in that and doing well in it, of course. And at that time, when you think of Duncan, are there any particular things where in Europe, any particular moments in European competition, the European Cup, what stands out, Wayne, where people would have perhaps heard about it, read about it, or listened to it on the radio and thought, right, OK, there is a serious play here? Yeah. Um, well, yeah, he made his reputation came on leaps and bounds in that time. So you you were talking there about wall-to-wall -wall coverage and he was emerging as a spectacle. The team were as a whole, but he was kind of like, I don't know if you've had the the misfortune, the semi-misfortune because he plays for City, of of witnessing Erling Haaland. Um, or, no, Ronaldo and Messi are also in, in this group. You know, like if they were there, if they were around, if you had an opportunity to go and see them, you wanted to go make sure that you were there to see them. And that was the case with Duncan Edwards, more so because everyone was talking about him as being this. Uh, first of all, United were brilliant, and then it was like Duncan Edwards is even better than than the average United player. You've got to go and see them. So yeah. obviously, attendances were people were going just to see Duncan Edwards. I remember Harry Redknapp telling me for that, that for the book that they went to Highbury just to watch, you know, the, the game before Munich, that they'd gone there just to watch Duncan Edwards because everyone had talked about him and they wanted to see, was he really that big in the flesh? Was he really that good? Um, so he, they were getting that reputation. But in European football, there are a couple of very notable performances that stand out um, or, or stood out for me when I was researching and they still do now. So we played Dortmund. We, Easily beat Anderlecht in the first round, the first European tie. They, they beat them 10 0 at Old Trafford, uh, Main Road, sorry. Um, sacrilege. Um, <laughs> particularly considering that the Old Trafford point is going to be my, one of my main ones of this, this reference I'm going to make. So easily beat Anderlecht. Um, Dortmund in the next game, not quite so easy. Because of the reputation they've got from that first round win, everyone is calling them the best team in the world. Um, no, no little hyper, but hyperbole in those days gary um unfortunately we say it's just for these days but it was for those but with fair game you know united were probably had a good shout to be best team in the world alongside real madrid so they batter and elect they go to um uh, they play germany at home in the first leg of the the um the second round they win three two very um complacent performance from united a little bit of criticism in their um, so they go out to Dortmund to play this return leg. Um, Duncan goes to a local sports shop. He's got to change his studs on his boots because there's an icy pitch. Um, Duncan is asked to play inside forward by Busby. He usually plays in holding midfield. But um, for, for Busby, unusually for him, he's decided to. he's going to be a little bit more pragmatic. He's, he's not going to change the shape because in that day, in those days, it was three basically three two two three three two two three two three two or something like that do you know what i mean it's, um or three two two three that's the one that's the way that i describe it so you've got the half backs and the inside forwards who are your middle four basically 
Um, Duncan usually played left half, which was the you know defensive midfielder. Yeah. In the, in this game, um, Busby wanted extra assurance, so he played Busby. He played Edwards at inside forward. Now, in the olden days, uh, older than this, um, Duncan, when he was in the youth team, he was inside forward because United would need a goal, you know, and they turn a game around and everything like that. In this game, Busby's told Edwards to control the game from inside forward. And I, I don't know if that is coming across quite as profound as I'm trying to make it sound. But you th think about an inside forward yeah. controlling, like Roy Keane. Think about Roy Keane as a defensive midfielder but that he's been asked to play in the Cristiano Ronaldo inside forward position yeah. and control the tempo of an entire game of football. And he did. He in a European away game as well, just to exactly. have a bit more context. This is not an FA Cup fourth exactly. round. Okay. Exactly, exactly. International relations are still frosty between the yeah. side because of uh, obviously recent history with German, Germany and England. Um, and he's gone there. He's on a terrible pitch, an icy pitch. He's just had to change his footwear, and he's controlled the the tempo. You know, he's basically been told to stop them building from the back and don't get any rhythm in their play. Disrupts everything that they're doing. And he did, and United drew nil-nil. No complacency on the night, and they go through to the next round. Um, and it's another draw that I'm going to pick out as a star performance. So you would have thought, surely there's a win in there. But the second draw is, um, you, you'll know why I'm picking it in a moment. I've, I've talked about this on Twitter a few times. We'd been, we played Madrid in the semi-final. All the players were overrode. Um, we lost three-one in the Bernabeu. The players had gone out there. It looked like a, you know. It, the, the stadium, it was so tall, they didn't know what they were dealing with. They're, these kids were still young. They were like, oh, my yeah. God. Um, and Bobby Charlton remembered looking at Duncan Edwards in the last 15 minutes of that game. And it's three, you know, like United are losing. I don't think it's 3-1. There was a couple of goals. Like maybe it was 2-0 at the time. There were a couple of goals scored in the last 10 minutes. And Edwards was fighting for everything. And Bobby Charlton looked across at him and he's like, how are you not overawed by this? Uh, why are you the one driving this? And it was kind of like a message to everyone, you know, you've got to be better than this. You've got to keep going on. And the next leg, um, United. the reason why United were able to convince their own board, Busby was able to convince his own board to play in Europe, was the idea that after a couple of games of gate receipts from Main Road that they shared, they could install floodlights at Old Trafford. Yeah. And they did that. And the, that meant that the first game they were installed for was the semi-final. Well, no, they were own, they were domestic games, but the first European game that they were installed for was Real Madrid, Old Trafford in the semi-final second leg. United were 3-1 down on aggregate. They were 2-0 down on the night at half-time. And then they switched the floodlights on. They were playing in all red. They had a um, reflective silver glare down the, the side of the shorts. Um, to make sure that they could be seen in the light. So the first time the floodlights are on Old Trafford and, you know, the 4-1, 5-1 down on aggregate, they're going out of the European Cup. They're, they're not going to come back into it. And they come out of the second half and Duncan Edwards is like a man possessed. Real Madrid players are doing everything they can to slow the game down. They, they don't want any more hassle. They can just navigate 45 yeah, so minutes. Yeah, you see it out and just get the yeah. job done. There's, there's no hassle. They're not going to concede five goals in 45 minutes, even against United at the best. Um but Edwards is having none of it. There's a moment in the game where one of the the Madrid fullbacks is is sort of time wasting on the floor. Edwards, apoplectic with rage, goes over to him and he gets Roger Byrne and they both pick him up and throw him over the touchline. Like, come on, get on with the game. And 
Um, United storm back and they draw 2-2. And Edwards is, is the pulse, is the heartbeat, he's chasing yeah. it down. United draw 2-2. They're out of the game. They're Well, they, they draw the game on the night, 2-2. Um, They're out 5-3 on aggregate, out of the European Cup. Um, that's their only meeting with Real Madrid. I think there's a little part of Edwards that's incandescent with rage because they lost the first game 3-1. Yeah, and after the game, Madrid put on a banquet for them, and you know they're they're quite gracious in, in being winners, but it's kind of like condescending. If you yeah, if, little, yeah, I if you're that, yeah. if you're a gracious winner, you you are being by some nature condescending to the opponent, and they give United's players gold watches, and Duncan treasured this gold watch that he got from the Real Madrid officials, but he still I no, you're not better than us. We can still beat you, and yeah. we'll beat you at Old Trafford. So. And he was he refused to take this defeat, and United got a draw on the night, and that might seem it may seem fairly insignificant to anyone listening to this because United was still out and they didn't win, and it might say that it, it proved nothing. But United went unbeaten at Old Trafford in European football for forty years after that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and he set a tone. He set a tone really, and it not only set a tone in terms of that. What Duncan did, he was bringing that to the United team because United, had, had, they played in this Busby Flair style. Do you know what I mean? They were scoring goals by the bucket. They were like, and by the blast, you know, so they'd be the, the best feature about this Busby team when they were really turning it on. When you really wanted to watch them play football, they were scoring three or four goals in 10 minutes, the way that they'd done in 48. You know, the, those kids had grown up listening to that. And yeah. they're like, so yeah, when that, that, yeah. So when they were doing it, it was like, yeah, we're a Busby team, we're a Manchester United team, this is what you expect from us. But what Edwards was bringing to them was something different. It was like, a, no, you can't beat us. You know, like we will not take defeat now. It's, it's a different kind of thing. And Edwards, and this was one of the challenges I had with writing the book, but one of the most rewarding aspects is was everyone was saying, well, there's no imperfections in his game. But there were imperfections in his game. And the imperfection was that he tried too hard yeah. and he would often be everywhere trying to compensate. So if he felt his team weren't defending well, he'd be back in defence trying to help. He'd yeah. be getting in ways of things. I, there was a, one season where, I think it was a season before, he conceded five penalties. Duncan Edwards conceded five penalties for handball because he kept getting in the way. Right, he would remonstrate with referees, and so they were trying to tell him, Get out of the way, you don't need to be here all the time. What you need to do is trust that everyone else will mature, they will all become brilliant players playing first team football, and you, in your natural position, influencing the game where you should. That will be how, how the evolution of this team's going to take shape. And he was learning that that's that was how he was getting better. So it came too soon for the the Real Madrid game because that was a, a world class Real Madrid team, and this was still a young United team learning that lesson. But they were learning that lesson, and that comeback in the second leg made you think, all right, if they come up against them again, they might not make the same naive mistakes. Yeah, they might, they might be brave enough to just go toe to toe with them from the start because Duncan Edwards had made them believe that they could do that. Um, and I know I'm probably jumping. So you want to you probably want to talk about the disaster, but the greatest legacy that Duncan left United after that was that the entire team ethos moving forward after mm -hmm. the tragedy when when Busby was convalescing and Jimmy Murphy was taking charge because obviously that was a trait passed down from Busby uh, from Murphy to Edwards it was you know like no cause is ever lost you fight for mm -hmm. everything um, and that was then on the pitch yeah okay I have gone on record and I do still believe it. It was a trait given by Jimmy Murphy to that United team. Yep. It was better personified than anyone 
in Duncan Edwards. And because those players knew what that Duncan Edwards effort was, they were better able to sort of manifest it in their own performance. So the greatest trait that got them through to the Wembley final in 1958 was the fact that they, you know, that they were putting in that kind of effort. It made them, they were, those players weren't good enough to win on the day, on the final, but they were good enough to get there because yeah. of the, the effort that they put in. And that was something given to them from Duncan Edwards. So you ask what Duncan Edwards gave to Manchester United. You find that in Brian Robson. You yeah. find that in Roy Keane. And it's no coincidence. Yeah, I'm not taking anything away from those players because those players were brilliant players in their own right. But I don't think without Duncan Edwards, you have that spirit in the middle of United's part. You have that never-say-die attitude, that you have that connection with the fans, that you have a Barcelona. Keane wasn't even on the pitch on the new camp in 1999, yeah. but the spirit was still there. And the spirit was there because United were fighting for something bigger as a collective. And that goes back all the way. I, I know this is a fact because Ferguson told me so about... Yeah, that's what I was about to say. I think Alex Ferguson took that on as well. I think yeah. definitely he took that on from from knowing the history of Murphy and Busby and obviously being close to Sir Matt Busby when he first joined the club until Sir Matt died. So yeah. I think definitely he took that on, Wayne. One thing that very interesting you said about that with the penalties, giving away the penalties and... I wonder if that goes back to him being a youth player and him almost being seen as, well, I've got to sort it out. We're in a mess here, lads. Yeah. And Jimmy Murphy saying, well, give it give it to Duncan. So Duncan Edwards being like the problem solver. I wonder if he felt, not in an arrogant way, but more like, oh, God, I, I need to help out. We're in a bit of difficulty at the back. I can I can do a job. Yeah. And probably, like you say, being a bit over-eager to try and put things right because all his career at United had been portrayed as like well yeah. Duncan will sort it out so I maybe know. he got a bit too over eager with it you're exactly right that well that's my estimation of it um for, for certain but when we're talking about it being blasphemous or sacrilegious to say that he had these faults in his game well that yeah. they were they were natural things that you associate with someone being so young and, and being put in a, in a first team so young and I think the best thing that something like that does is when you can notice an imperfection, you can estimate a trend of progression. Then you can say, well, once he irons that out, you know what else he'll bring to the side because then you'll know how good he could have been. You know, the idea was, when you, you said it right at the top, and it's certainly something that I took on board when I started writing, is how, how, could he, how good could he have been? You know yeah. what I mean? And, and no one knew, and, and people wouldn't even know his right position. Do you know what I mean? Where, where did he exactly play on the pitch and all that sort of stuff? Well, I was able to nail all that down. That sort of stuff is fairly straightforward. you just got to understand football in positions, and they were slightly different. But, the, you know, there's a translation in today's football. He played defensive midfield. That was his best position. Yeah. He played as a holding midfielder, and he controlled the pace of the game. Um, but the, the other stuff, in terms of, like, you know, how good he could have been, well... You just look at the what were unfortunately, but or fortunately, weaknesses in his game, and you say, well, once that was um, eradicated, then you knew that he wouldn't be making. Iris the the thing about Duncan Edwards was he had this sense of responsibility from seventeen or eighteen. He had a sense of fair play, um, and he knew economy. So, for example, his his, his school teachers have said to him before. Um, before he even played professional football, you know, you've got to learn to kick mm -hmm. with both feet. You've got to be able to play with both feet. So he became um, 
I remember the name is it Ambi Pedal or something like that. Um, you know, Ambi Dexterous, but yeah, feet. but with feet instead of instead it's of hands. It's Ambi Pedal, I think. Um, so he became so adept, and uh, on the footage, you mentioned about footage, like there was actually a, a lot of increase in footage over on him while I was writing the book. Some guy had old footage on YouTube, and I'm not making this up. It was there. No, I've, I've I've had a look myself, Wayne. I've had a look. There, okay. are, there, are, there is but, some, yeah. Well, it actually um, since has been taken down since I, the book came out. Oh, so no. the guy, it was a guy called Heavy Roller, and he had, um, I guess I can mention him because it's not plugging anything too bad, but he was uploading loads and loads of old games and like long yeah. highlights of old games, like 20 minutes and things like that. So, and I watched all of them, and you had a really good idea of what Duncan Edwards um, could do as a player. It wasn't just brief, you know what I mean? You had a really good um, estimation of what he could do. Um, I, I know that some people took some of those videos and they were able to um, clip some stuff together, so there is some yeah. more Duncan footage online than before, but I always like the... You know, those things are action footage now. you you got something of him in another 60-yard pass or scoring another 30-yard yeah. goal. I like the stuff sometimes that you're watching when you're watching off-the-ball stuff. You're watching mm -hmm. his positioning. And you don't people don't look for that on old highlights. They look for what's happening on the ball. The best thing, when you're watching something just for one player, you are watching all that off-the-ball yeah. stuff so you can see the intelligence in his game. And I, I do think... I tried to be as fair as I could without, you know, obviously I still think he was the greatest player of his time, but, um, and he was so far ahead of his peers, but then you, I, those imperfections were getting ironed out quickly. He knew what the imperfections were. You know, it wasn't like he didn't know that he'd made mistakes with the ambos or anything that he'd been too eager. He realized that and it was kind of like, okay, some of it he thought might have been remonstrating with the referees. He might've been unhappy with their, their not fair play. Um, or, or the, the aggression of an opponent or something like that. But he was learning that. He was kind of like, I don't need to get involved in that. I'll, I'll move on to the next thing. And, and the next step for him was dominating the midfield where United won European Cups. There's nothing logical that says that that wasn't going to happen. So if he'd have won three or four European Cups, then um, there's no... there's no like The, the Cantona argument, or even the Ronaldo argument, you know, the six, Ronaldo was there for six years. Cantona was there for four and a half. Duncan Edwards' playing career was around the same. You know, he's in yeah. that same period of time. So there's no reason why he can't be included in that conversation no. for, what, for, for what he did achieve. But we're talking about lost potential. And if he'd been around for that sort of two or three years after and won two or three European Cups as destiny should have allowed him, then there'd be no conversation about whether or not he's the best United midfielder of all time. He's there and he's plus one. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. There's no conversation about it. There's no. conversation about it now because those medals weren't won. You know, it's just one of those things, really. Um, lost potential is analysing loads of different ways. I already tackled that subject with George Best, and that was someone who did win a European Cup, yeah. and he did win the Ballon d'Or. So those accolades were there to, to serve as justification for any description that you would say is the greatest ever. But it's still a diff it's only a different variation of that conversation. And you know, and I know, and probably most analysts listening to this, people who really take an interest in football, medals, personal or individual, only tell half a story in terms of yeah, plays. Exactly, um, yeah. You have to understand the full picture. And um, I still wouldn't say that Duncan was the greatest of all time because I think that those errors in his, t in his play, we were robbed of yeah. seeing that flesh out. Um, and that's that's the tragedy, isn't yeah. it? That's the tragedy, really. And people, 
and I, I wouldn't I, I suppose I feel to be more diplomatic with the way that I say this because I can understand where people say that he is the greatest of all time and I'm not disregarding that sentiment or unfactual I just mean from the perspective I tried to tell with the story of the book was that without question he would have been greatest of all time but there was a tragedy involved and because of that tragedy we could never see that happen no. something that was inevitable i'm certain i don't think it's even doubtful that it would have happened but we weren't there yet and no. that's the tragedy exactly and you just we just don't know how it could have panned out he could have broken his leg two years later or something like that we yeah. just don't know the the everything was in place for him to become a great a real great but obviously we don't know now i imagine the answer to this is quite obvious but it must have been so difficult for you to write about the last part of the book you know to cover munich and despite the fact of our age we we didn't live through it wayne but it doesn't matter it's it's part of the club and it's a tragedy and it's sad and we're human beings we've all got emotions and to write having followed the story and being so invested in your story and meeting people and interviewing people talking about him and yourself getting involved in the story more and more as you write it to for it to come to the conclusion it did i can only imagine it must have been very difficult to to yeah. talk about the munich disaster yeah so the um the, the storytelling device such that it was was um that i wanted to one of the things i wanted to do with making this book different or this account of duncan's life different apart from normalizing him and humanizing him yeah was to take munich out of it in real time so you read in the book munich's not referenced apart from the introduction yeah um it's not referenced throughout the book so it might as well not have happened until yeah. it happens um, i knew that that would make writing that part of it difficult yeah um i already knew that from the start because all the research i'd done i knew elements of that story that were going to go in um so there's two elements that the book's been out long enough so i'm not spoiling it by talking about this um i'd been lucky enough to interview Harry greg a few years before he died and yeah. when i um i mentioned that I was writing the book um it's just after Harry had passed away um his family because I, I, i'm in contact with his daughter his son his grandson and his daughter reached out to me and said oh you're writing this book on duncan um i said yeah he said well, i've got a story to tell you about harry and it effectively was um most people are familiar if you're familiar with the story of munich you're familiar with um the the story of duncan edwards not knowing where his watch is and then they get the watch and um he said um I, the, the first part of this i was found out when i was doing the jimmy murphy book that jimmy had put the, the watch back on his wrist and uh, this was what caused duncan to say what time's kickoff on saturday jimmy it's three o'clock you know oh, i won't miss it get stuck in or something like that um so the first part of that i'd been told about jimmy putting the the watch back on his wrist um but i didn't i wasn't told the other part and the other part of that was that and harry Gregg had taken this with with him to his grave because anyone who knows the story of munich will also know that harry Gregg is seen as a hero of munich yeah quite right alex he went back into the plane and, and pulled bodies out um alive and dead yeah to preserve the dignity and try and save the life um he did that without even thinking um and famously 
shunned any talk that he was a hero, saying that anyone would have done that. Mm. He's quite mistaken, but um, it, it, that's what he said, and he disregarded all that talk of him being a hero. Um, because of that, he would never make public other stories, such as this one, where because Duncan was so delirious um, about not having his watch, he was so upset and he couldn't find it. Um, Harry went back to the hair to the airfield to look for it. Right. So he actually went and he found it mangled, smashed to smithereens. And it's quite actually. I'm getting upset thinking about it. The, no, the, watch, the watch was quite. It was it was mangled, but he got it. He got the watch, and he took it back. Um, and obviously gave it to Jimmy, who put it on his wrist. Yeah. And and Duncan had no idea that the, the no, watch was smashed right. up, but he was just so glad to be reunited. The gold watch that I was saying about that the Real Madrid, the Madrid watch. Yeah, that had been given to him, um, placed back on his on his wrist, um, even though it was smashed up. He yeah. just he, gave, he did him the dignity of um, reuniting him with that watch, uh, which just tells you everything more about Harry Gregg as Completely. a person. Uh, but but they said like you know obviously Harry kept that with him because he wanted he didn't want more people saying that he was a hero for more than what they already had. He was too embarrassed yeah. by it. But his family obviously quite proud of him and completely understandably wanted yeah. to share that. So that was a privilege. And I, I had that story from the start, which I you know and obviously some. A few books have been written on Duncan, and maybe for some some reason, some things have been missed when um, looking at the newspaper accounts. But there was one account which stuck with me um, so vividly. I opened the book with it actually because it was so strong and so powerful, and I never heard the story before. Um, close to death, um, Duncan had um, a kidney transplant. Well, they brought in a, a machine from uh, i think it was from frankfurt actually they raced in the machine overnight he was having a lot of di dialysis and treatment on his kidney because that was the smashed um the part that was most damaged that they were most worried about and effectively did um impact him losing his life um so because he was having so much trouble with it they were um and they, he was always losing a lot of blood and they were trying every, it seemed like every few days they're having a problem with his kidney and they were trying a new kind of technique to try and combat it. Um, he was in and out of consciousness a lot, um, so much so that they, they called it a coma, but he was still in and out of consciousness at, yep. at certain points. And um, a couple of nights before he died, um, he was drifting off and they thought he was going to, they thought he was about to die, but he was, he was dreaming. And he um, he he shouted goal goal. He was um, wow. he yeah he was um, he was dreaming playing football. And you know no, what? No. And he could have died then. Yeah. And he would have died dreaming of playing football and scoring yeah. a goal. And um, and he he hung on for a couple more days after that. He actually continued to fight. And the doctor said, you know, no one who wasn't as sturdy and as resolute yeah. as someone as as him could have, have maintained that fight for so long. Uh, but there's a, such a tragic poetry in that, and I'd never heard that story before. No, it's the first thought, time I've heard that, Wayne, as well, yeah. So I had to open the book with it, but I knew that I'd be revisiting that um, in, in real time as I went along, because I, I was going to include it again. I'm not going to not include that story. No, not. And um, so when I get, you know, it was, I had to, it wasn't a chapter I, I could write in one day, it was something I had to keep coming back to. It was, it was very, very difficult. Uh, 
thing to write actually um but rewarding in the way that um i didn't because the idea is what do you do do you not tell it do you, do you try and dress it up because people knew that he died so do you just tell it in, in as brief a way as possible or do you tell the details the tragic details of this happened on this day this happened on this day they, he was yeah. fighting they thought they'd lost him and i thought and it's a biography of his life i know a lot of people have mushed that into one brief period and i thought no just unfortunately pull it out and see just put everything in there that relates to what was going on and it enabled that detail to go in um and yeah i mean it's it's all the more there's nothing that makes it less tragic everything you know i just told you mm -hmm. the greg story the thing you know like more than just death instantly in a in a plane crash there's these other things even going back to a year earlier well nine months earlier on the post-season tour with the england and the 23s to romania he played at the end of a long season he was on the plane to romania and just as they were coming into land the plane was chased by a russian fighter jet who thought it was a spy and they oh, wow. fired they fired at the jet right um so D duncan edwards and david Pegg changed seats because they were so terrified yeah um and at the end as they got off i think duncan had talked to a journalist and, and told him don't don't report about this in the press because firstly international relations are not good secondly yeah. we don't want we're english we don't want to come across as looking weak that story is actually in gordon clayton gordon i think it's gordon clayton's book um because he was his, his young teammate and that you know obviously it wasn't in newspaper reports but it was no. in, in his books so i read the book and it's like oh my god how was this story not been told anyway if you think that's crazy enough on the same day those players went to the the england youth team they went to for their downtime they went to um, a circus a local circus in bucharest and um they were sat on on one of the seats and duncan just had a, a weird premonition he said i don't want to sit here i want to move somewhere else so they moved and sat somewhere else and within 30 seconds one of the tall lights went the tall oil lights back in those days from inside the tent yep. came crashing down right on the seats where they would have sat so oh, so in the june seven months before he died um they have two near-death experiences and one journalist quipped to him after said lucky duncan edwards oh, right. so this yeah and this is the thing what i love about your work wayne is the fact that you've been able to unearth so many things because the book of course you're a manchester united supporter you're writing about manchester united but duncan edwards for me is someone that should be considered like a national treasure anyway yeah. because like with dudley the fact as i said there's no connection to manchester united without duncan edwards really um the fact that there's no doubt about it he would have been a key part of england's 1962 world cup team and of course 66 on home home turf so um and at the time football was nowhere near as tribal either yeah. um the the outpouring of respect and love that sh that showed for united as a club after what happened the fact that other clubs were able to just say right well we've got a player you can have a player and etc cetera, etc cetera. and the way that other people just came together to help um where you think nowadays it doesn't it doesn't bear thinking about the the reaction would be there would be such a lot of negativity which you you didn't see then those days in 1958 um 
to anybody listening, really, you've got to check out Wayne's book. I'm not just saying that because he's here, because it's just an important chapter of football, not just about Munich, but the English game itself, a period of time, which, as I said, this is not something you can go on YouTube and just pick match of the day highlights for. You can't go and look at it and say, oh, it's on Sky this weekend, It's uh, or whatever, or TNT. It's, you can't just get it. There's no ESPN Classic anymore. They don't have the rights to things like this. So books like what Wayne's written is where you're going to find out stories like this, nuggets like this. So it's important if you're into football, you love football, whether you support Manchester United or not, I think it's important to read these books because it's just pure interest. And this is not somebody that you're going to have an agenda against because it's not like Cantona or Beckham. We say, oh, I saw him play. I didn't like him. He did this. He did that. This is about somebody that none of us saw or the majority of us didn't see anyway. So it's a great historical way to learn about somebody. And unfortunately, one of the biggest what-ifs in, in football. Absolutely. Wayne, it's been absolutely fantastic sharing this time with you and very difficult for both you and I to talk about that last part um, because it's a very sensitive subject and um, very hard as well because, of course, for me and you, it's um, something that, although we we're not alive, it's still very an emotional topic. It's been absolutely brilliant sharing this time with you and um, best of luck with all your projects. Um, anything that you've got you can tell us about in the pipeline coming up? Not allowed. Um, <laughs> Which means I, that people should keep their eye out then and make sure they're following you yeah. so they, they can keep a track of that because obviously you've got something exciting. You've always got something. You always tend to give us these little snippets and say, oh, wow, something big's coming. And then we have to wait a little bit. The same happened with the George Best book. And then you said, wow, I've got something now and I can't believe I'm going to work on it. And then, of course, it came out that it was a book on Duncan Edwards. And um Great credit to you, Wayne, because you've done, I believe, what the family wanted and the friends wanted by humanising him and also spreading the word as well to people, again, a new audience of people that, that needed to know this story. So congratulations on that. And thank you very much for giving your time today. Thank you. Well, I really enjoyed that. I really did. And I hope you did as well. As I said, it did get a little bit emotional at times for both Wayne and myself. Please remember to check out Eternal by Wayne Barton and also any of his other work if you're interested as well. Thank you very much for joining me. See you next time. I'm Gary Cook and this is Retro Football Network Podcast. <laughs>